Welcome to Driving the Deal, a podcast that brings you into conversations with key figures from across healthcare private equity. My name is Chris Whirling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life sciences deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's private equity practice. And I'm Brian Fortune, head of the Farad Square Group, where I lead the firm's research and diligence work. Welcome to our Olympic edition. Chris is going to be celebrating this weekend by uh, heading out to snowy northern Michigan to do a little classic cross-country skiing. I was also going to get out and freeze my tail off doing uh, something interesting, but DC has had a bit of non-winter weather surge, so instead I went out and drove a convertible car with the top down, and it was wonderful. One thing we love about the Olympics is that whether you're talking about figure skating or biathlon or hockey or even curling, a lot of the sports are immensely complicated. So in that vein, it makes sense that today we'll be talking about one of the more complicated aspects of the healthcare marketplace, which is the world of commercial managed care payers. Today, we're gonna be joined by uh, one of our wonderful guests, Frank Martin. He is the head of the commercial payer division for Farragut Square and as a 30-year veteran of managed care entities doing network design and uh, and contracting and uh, many fun features. We're very great to have him. But first, we'd like to announce a couple of upcoming things of interest. Speaking of things that are very different from the Winter Olympics, we wanted to tell our listeners about an upcoming conference that we are hosting in Miami, Miami Beach to be specific. On March 9 and 10 of this year, we'll be hosting our annual Healthcare Private Equity Miami event. Uh, this is really a return to in-person events. I think we're all tired of the Zoom-based conferences and are eager to get back together in person. The venue will allow us to have some of our sessions outside on the beach. We'll have a ballroom on the sand. Looking forward to seeing Brian in his suit. And more importantly, though, uh, really the leaders of the healthcare private equity investment community will be assembled. We do this conference in conjunction with HICPEE, which is the Healthcare Private Equity Association. March 9th, we'll have a variety of welcome activities, a dinner. It will be a great chance to catch up with folks that you have not been together with in person for two years now. And on March 10th, we have a great packed day of programming. We'll have a banker's panel, a panel of investors talking about uh, the disruption and dispersion in healthcare private equity, a panel on continuation and single asset funds, which have been all the rage with private equity investors, an update on financing trends, digital health discussion, and then a whole raft of breakout sessions in the afternoon on different subsects. Brian and I are looking forward to meeting you all there. If you're interested in attending the conference or getting more information, check out our website at www.mwe.com or reach out to Brian or I, and we'll get you that information. We hope you all come out. Brian, I know you're looking forward to it, getting your suit packed and everything. What else is new in your world? It will be good to see everybody again. Uh, many of you who attend that conference regularly will know that the 2020 conference was actually the, the last major in-person event you might have done before lockdowns began around the country. So this will be sort of a celebration of a possible return to something resembling normalcy. I'd also like to note, we've been talking a lot about behavioral on previous events. Farragut did a webinar on behavioral recently, and then I would just point out that this just recently, we put out a note about some major developments in California to take a look at. If you'll know, California just launched a demonstration program where they received approval from uh, Washington and CMS that incorporates 
substance abuse treatment as a permanent part of the Medi-Cal managed care system. We talked a little bit about some of the major elements of that, and uh, that note should be out there in your inbox, so uh, please take a look at it. So again, we're very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Frank Martin, who's the head of our commercial care division at Farragut Square Group. So welcome to our wonderful podcast, Frank. I thought we would start off by, you know, as we look ahead to 2022, maybe let's start off with a broad top line before we get specific. And are there any major trends in the commercial payer sphere that that you've been watching take shape uh, over the last couple of years through the pandemic and and heading uh, maybe out the backside of it? Well, I think some of the things that we've noticed with managed care is um, the move by managed care organizations to begin to really utilize gatekeeper policy. By gatekeeper policy, what we mean is that they've introduced more services that require prior authorization, prospective review prior to the services being approved. That's something that has taken us aback because for the last couple of years, they've been a bit more flexible in the way that they shape those policies. But I think that they've also seen the amount of expense or the volume or the utilization that's been going through when they've let up on, on UM management and prior off. So we expect that to continue for the next couple of years. On the flip side, we've also seen that payers are more likely to begin to really loosen up the number of services that can be performed in either an ambulatory setting or an office setting or home health services or to be provided in the home. That is a strategy that the payers yeah. have been putting in for quite some time. So we'll, we expect that to continue to pick up over the course of the year and going forward. Well, it's very interesting. Now, in this podcast, we're going to delve into some specific subtopics as they relate to managed care. But you know, one of the first ones that I think is, is relevant because Medicare just put out or CMS just put out the recent forecasted update for it is the commercial payers in the Medicare program, otherwise known as Medicare Advantage. Interesting things going on in Medicare Advantage, Frank. You know, on the one hand, they've had phenomenal growth, you know, over the last 20 years now. The program was as low as like 7% of the beneficiaries. It has now broken above 40, which I believe it's about at 42% right now. And mm-hmm. whether you're talking about MedPAC or CMS, they're forecasting that, you know, it might wind up accounting for one out of every two Medicare beneficiaries as early as next year uh, or even by 2025. But one thing that you've noted that's kind of interesting is that this last year might not have been quite as much growth as as previous years. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Obviously, whether you're talking about Humana or Aetna or United, it seems like all of them went and gave kind of investor updates saying that they had overestimated their enrollment and, and missed their targets. Well, I, I think that you're right that projected numbers are one thing, actualized numbers are, are quite something else. You know, Humana had to make an adjustment in their investment, the investment community of almost 100,000 members. Aetna had a 70,000 member revision and United had an 80,000 member variance. But, you know, we're also dealing in very unique times with respect to COVID, the pandemic, the issues that our healthcare system has been facing, the lack of participation of some of our Medicare Advantage patients from, or their reluctance in moving into managed care if they were on fee-for-service. So 
you know, I think that that is just a sign of a very unique period in our history. And as we move away from COVID and the pandemic and things begin to somewhat normalize and we're, we're able to, to live with this pandemic or this virus, that you will see that payers will begin to reattract those members. But the other thing that we saw was that we were talking with a lot of organizations that actually work with Medicare eligible patients. And what we were being told was that you have a different level of sophistication of the Medicare Advantage patient today who really have been have grown up with managed care for quite some time. And they've realized very quickly that they are not very happy with the level of restrictions that are offered under managed care plans. And so they feel a particular loss of freedom if they move into Medicare Advantage rather than staying on Medicare fee-for-service. Whether that will change, you know, that depends on the demographic. Do I think that managed care companies have tapped out the Medicare Advantage recruitment or enrollment rate? No, I don't. I think we've hit a bit of slump it'll pick up and it'll stabilize going forward. We, we saw that before, probably about four or five years ago, where you had huge enrollment, but when you got up above, you know, kind of in the 40s, pushing to 50% in places like South Florida, things leveled off for a few years. And what we heard at the time from plans was that point in time, they had essentially achieved the level of penetration that they were going to with that mix of seniors. But as boomers started to come into the system and accelerate, that things would pick up again. And they did. No, and I think that, I mean, that analogy works, but you also have to look at Medicare Advantage growth and enrollment very much on a geographic area. There are some states that attract a larger Medicare Advantage patient than others or enrollment of Medicare Advantage patients than others. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And as the U.S. population continues to migrate or this particular patient potentially migrates into warmer climates, you'll see an uptick in, in warmer states rather than in colder states. So it'll balance itself out. It really just depends more on the member themselves and what they are willing to deal with with respect to managed Medicare and the restrictions that are offered by the plan or the incentives that are offered by the plan. Well, there'll be lots to talk about as we go ahead. Obviously, a lot of providers that we examine these days have to think through their dealings with Medicare Advantage because in a number of geographies here, you know, you just can't chart a course where a lot of your patients are not MA enrollees. Well, I think you're right. I think that providers have gotten a bit more sophisticated in the way that they're dealing with the Medicare Advantage population, including moving to capitated payments, either up or downside risk or global risk, and the level of sophistication that they're bringing into their practices. Now, you know, we still have a long way to go with the ordinary mom and pop organization being able to move into value-based care or capitated risk arrangements. But I think that as you begin to continue to see the consolidation in primary care and primary and specialty services, it sets up all of the requisite criteria to move into value-based and then move into more, almost more exotic contracting by payers and providers. You know, from what we're seeing, the value care is now beginning to take a foothold in primary care and in, in specialties. And some specialties lend themselves very well to value-based care and some don't. That's a great overview. Thank you. One of the sectors that has seen a ton of activity from investors over the last two years has been the behavioral health space. And it's an area that payers regularly grapple with. Frank, what are some of the things that are front of mind for payers 
within the behavioral health sector right now? Well, I think over the years, payers have understood the necessity and the value of behavioral health for the membership. The problem, however, is that they've taken a long time to realize the dollar amount that should be paid to behavioral health care providers and bring them in line with other specialties. That, unfortunately, has caused an issue with providers where they found that it was more profitable or less aggravating to remain as a self-pay provider rather than join a managed care company. So what we're seeing today in specific geographic areas is that payers have a, not an access problem, but a network distribution problem where you have higher concentration of providers in metropolitan areas and then a scarcer delivery of services in more rural areas. That, of course, has pushed up some of the reimbursement rate in certain states like California, Texas, New York, Florida. But the one saving grace that behavioral health has is payers have been relying on telehealth for quite some time. COVID has almost shed a spotlight on the level and the amount of services uh, that are needed with, within behavioral health. But that, unfortunately, hasn't stopped the payers from continuing to move down the line for to where services are delivered, from the acute psychiatric facility to outpatient services to residential treatment services to individual group therapy. And we're going to continue to see that. And while telehealth may have helped with respect to some gaps. Unfortunately, it is now also causing some issues with the payers, with providers and members confusing where they can receive the delivery of care from providers that aren't sightest in their states, especially with the introduction of the site compact that's out there allowing multi-state licensing from these providers. Benefit was never designed to be able to accommodate that, and now we're seeing some issues, or at least the payers are seeing some issues. Frank, would you say there's some opportunity for investors who are looking to build behavioral health provider services in rural areas? I do, but when you're looking at service areas, you'd almost have to draw a line smack down the middle of the country, with Texas being the dividing line. You have a, a large plethora of providers on the eastern side side of that line, and even on the southeastern side of that line, you have a disparity in the number of providers more toward the western side of the Texas line. And that's common because you have less geographic concentration of people in some states. But where providers are thoroughly lacking in services is adolescent care. We found that that transcends both east and west providers. So there's a great deal of opportunity for investors that are looking to implement adolescent behavioral health care facilities in both the West and the East Coast. There just aren't enough of them, and there aren't enough providers that specialize in pediatric psych or pediatric psychology. So it seems that we also need some incentives set up to uh, encourage more providers to focus in, in those areas. We do. There, The payers have made some adjustments with respect to primary care and pediatric services, allowing the physician to do a behavioral health evaluation on the member and then have removed some obstacles with respect to prior authorization to move them through the system a lot more. We know that if the member, especially an adolescent or even an adult, isn't treated or isn't captured and brought into the system quickly, that it's unlikely that they will receive that treatment that they need. With respect to the, the level of the number of services, they're going to have to figure out a way to be able to use telemedicine more effectively, uh, but also re 
reevaluate the reimbursement levels that they're currently introducing to providers and really looking at this from a diagnosis subset than, uh, than the way that they're currently doing. Mm-hmm. So sooner or later, those adjustments to fee schedules are going to have to be made. Mm-hmm. The, the problem, however, is many of the payers that outsource behavioral health because they simply don't have the internal skill sets to be able to manage this benefit. Those vendors are on capitated payments, so it's in their best interest to keep those fee schedules not artificially low, but to limit the number of increases. Until the payers can realize and make adjustments for that with respect to capitation or bring them into a value-based payment arrangement or establish some metrics, which is very difficult to do in behavioral health, then you're, you're still going to get this fee creep or fee stagnation in behavioral health. So moving back to government finance, commercial payer contractors, uh, we talked a little bit about Medicare Advantage earlier uh, in the episode, but uh, let's move over to Medicaid. Medicaid is very interesting because, you know, across the entire country, you know, we're looking at something around 80% of lives are now managed by commercial payers who subcontract with the state. You know, as you look at that, Frank, like what, what sort of stands out? Are, are, the, are the commercial payers able to effectively manage those populations in states or are in some cases are they acting more like fiscal intermediaries and just kind of administering a state-defined benefit? I think they're doing a little bit of both. They are acting as fiscal intermediaries because they have to follow the defined state benefit. But at the same time, they bring in case management, utilization management, and patient outreach programs and community health care providers that help to really control those utilization dollars. I think you and I had discussed the the ability to control emergency room visits or unnecessary hospital stays. That's where payers are most effective in being able to move the needle. But they've gone back to what traditional managed care has been, which is looking at preemptive services, assuring that the patient keeps those those appointments with their primary care physician, assuring that the follow-up visits are there, doing customer outreach and member outreach for different services, combining home health care services with, with the delivery of care, and really assuring that the member continues to remain compliance with the care plan management that's been developed with. Unfortunately, the Medicaid population is, is sometimes very difficult because of the situations that they're in to be able to assure compliance. And so payers have, have learned the hard way that they have to really invest more resources in community outreach to assure that compliance level and to control those utilization dollars. That's interesting. Another thing we've seen, Frank, that would be interesting to hear your comment on is that it seems like managed care is also either subsumed or incorporated some of the elements that were in a number of state waiver programs designed to keep beneficiaries away from another thing that costs states a lot of money, and that is people moving from uh, their at-home setting into, you know, long-term institutional care. Well, I, th- I think that you you have to remember that the payer is paid a percentage of premium dollar for each patient. And that percentage of premium is divvied up amongst several different providers. And obviously the payer makes their margin on that as well. So the more programs you add, the more you have to move around the payment bucket for services. Eventually, you have to stop moving around that payment bucket, especially if you're trying to move it to uh, attract more members into the Medicaid population or, or in, uh, not the Medicaid population, but the Medicaid enrollment. So yes, payers have a, have some leeway in being able to introduce various programs into Medicaid, but they have to be very cautious about the cost of those programs and not starving one program in order to implement the other. 
You know, Frank, another area that our private equity clients have been very focused on for years has been practice management in all different sorts of specialties. Of course, some of the retail health specialties, ophthalmology, dermatology have been popular areas, but now we have clients moving towards uh, some of the surgical specialties, GI, orthopedic, cardiology, very active last year. From a payer perspective, one thing that, that I've seen in transactions is some increasing difficulty with payers consenting to the change of control of practices. It wasn't something that we really had to deal with much uh, in the early stages of this wave of practice management investing, but more and more it's creeping in where a payer will reject a proposed change of control of a practice when you're trying to merge the practice or even entering into a management contract with the practice. So we've seen some payers you know, revise their terms and conditions to state that entering into a management agreement is a change of control that they have to consent to. We've also seen some of the payers, this is a little more popular in the Southeast and areas where there are more practices taking capitated payments. Some of the payers will insert rights of first refusal into their contracts with primary care and other types of groups. And what what's the perspective of payers on the increasing size of some practice management groups and, and physician practices in, in our country? Well, I think Brian will tell you that he's heard me drone on about this for quite some time. So if, if his mic was active, you'd probably hear him giggling on the back end. But we've been warning a lot of our clients that payers have gotten very good at using the assignment clause and change of control language within their agreements, especially as private equity has moved in. We've also advised our clients on to move around that change of control. And some have found it very, very successful in being able to do that. But at the same time, payers are catching on. For every piece of advice that we've given to our clients, with respect to how to deal with these issues, the payers have been very quick to block that. You know, the, the first couple of providers will get through and then the, the next batch of providers will encounter some difficulty. Unfortunately, the, the issue becomes when providers are trying to roll up a lot of the, these new practices under one tin and basically cherry pick the best rate. So payers have gotten very good at stopping that. The best way to approach the payer is present them with the geographic footprint that the new entity is going to be able to service and the volume of patients going through each individual entity and combine that to be able to use as leverage within negotiation. That's one way that you can begin to tackle some of the obstacles the payers have put in. But we're going to see more of it going forward. Humana has been incredibly difficult with respect to how it treats roll-up of tins. Well, there's always lots to talk about on that front, but this was a this was a great overview for today. Thank you. Anytime, Brian. We have a number of interesting topics for healthcare private equity investors planned for upcoming episodes. So make sure to subscribe to the McDermott Health Channel so you don't miss future episodes. You can also learn more about McDermott's private equity practice by visiting mwe.com forward slash PE. Brian? And as always, to learn more about Farragut Square Group, please visit www.farragutsquaregroup.com. We hope you'll join us again for another great episode. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.